You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's second to last show of the semester, Coda explains how the university responded to unauthorized undie run. And I update you on the excessive use of force lawsuit against Loveland police. After that, Jonathan Gillum will update us on CSU's athletics. And then you'll be hearing a conversation between myself and Christine Castello from the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade about how the American Rescue Plan's support for artistic industries in Colorado is working out. Then Jacob Selby tells us about a boat accident involving migrants, and we'll be hearing from Anton Schindler about the history of ballpark food. I give some updates on the microchip shortage and updates on Facebook's oversight board's decision on whether or not former President Donald Trump is allowed on the platform. To conclude the show, I'll be telling you about how artificial intelligence made to tell pastries apart may be used to identify cancer. Let's move right into campus and local news. I'm Cutta Babcock and this is Campus News for Tuesday. The Campus Undie Run gathered a crowd of over 800 this weekend. According to Isaiah Dennings at the Rocky Mountain Collegian, Colorado State University's police and the Larimer County's Sheriff's Office maintained presence at the event due to the violation of public health guidance. The university sent an email to students prior to the event, describing the event as unauthorized. In their email, CSU's public safety team said, quote, The run annually costs the university between $10,000 and $15,000 in your tuition money due to damages to property and safety concerns. Since the run began several years ago, the university has spent approximately $165,000 to $170,000 in student money to cover these costs, end quote. Additionally, the email encouraged students not to attend due to misconduct concerns from the university and COVID-19 exposure risk. The Associated Students of Colorado State University also encouraged students to avoid the event. Very few participants or attendees of the run wore masks, but but some students expressed that the run will happen any year in which students are on campus, and the university cannot avoid it despite how many students might disagree with its occurrence. That's all for campus news for Tuesday. Now for local news with Ivy Winfrey. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your local news for today on the Rocky Mountain Review. Three Loveland police officers involved in the arrest and detention of a 73-year-old resident with dementia last summer have resigned, Loveland police officials announced Friday. According to Sadie Swanson and Rebecca Powell at the Coloradoan, Officers Austin Hopp, Daria July, and Community Service Officer Tyler Blackett are, quote, no longer employed with the Loveland Police Department, Chief Robert Tyser announced in a morning press conference. Tyser declined to specify whether the officers resigned or were terminated, calling that a personal matter. Department spokesperson Tom Hacker later told the Coloradoan that the three officers resigned. The announcement comes about two weeks after a federal civil rights lawsuit was filed by attorney Sarah Scheike on behalf of Garner and her family, alleging officers used excessive force and violated Garner's rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The lawsuit also accuses the Loveland Police Department of failing to train their officers on interacting with residents and disabilities. In addition to three former officers, Sergeant Philip Metzler and Sergeant Antelina Hill are also named as defendants in the lawsuit. Metzler, who also responded to the scene of Garner's arrest and was Hop's supervisor, has been placed on administrative leave. Tyser says that Hill, who is accused of knowing about Garner's injuries and not intervening, is continuing to work her regular duty assignment. 
Tyser said Friday that he was not aware of the allegations that Garner was seriously injured during the June 26th arrest until the federal lawsuit was filed April 14th. In Hop's body camera footage released to the public by Scheichel, Hop is seen pushing Garner to the ground within seconds of approaching her after she was accused of leaving Walmart without paying for $13.88 worth of merchandise. Garner was stopped by staff before leaving with the items. July arrives on scene shortly after, as does Metzler, and they are seen in the video assisting Hop in forcibly detaining Garner. During the arrest, officers dislocated Garner's shoulder, fractured her arm, and sprained her wrist, according to the lawsuit. Garner has dementia and sensory aphasia, which impairs her ability to communicate and understand others, according to her family. Video from inside the Loveland Police Department, also released by Shaiki, shows Hop, July, and Blackett laughing and talking about the arrest while watching Hop's body camera footage together as Garner sits handcuffed in a holding cell nearby. 8th Judicial District Attorney Gordon McLaughlin launched a criminal investigation led by Fort Collins Police Services to determine if any laws were violated. After the critical incident response team investigation, Tyser has said that the department will work with the city's Human Resources Department and a third-party investigator to conduct an internal affairs investigation to determine if any officers involved violated department policies. Colorado Governor Jared Polis announced Sunday that Coloradoans gathering inside groups of 10 or more are no longer required to wear masks if at least 80% of the group is vaccinated against COVID-19. According to Shelley Bradbury at the Denver Post, the order, which also extends other parts of statewide mask mandate for another 30 days, says people must show proof of vaccination in order to remove their masks in such situations. It did not elaborate on what proof is considered applicable or how it will be verified. In April, Polis ordered that the mask wearing was not required in most indoor settings in counties where the threat of COVID-19 was the lowest, rated as level green on the state scale. That continues under the new order. Residents across the state are still required to wear masks in schools, child care centers, indoor children's camps, public-facing state government facilities, prisons, jails, and health care settings, according to a Sunday news release from the governor's office. Indoor mask wearing will still be required in counties with higher rates of COVID-19 unless 80% of attendees can prove they are vaccinated, according to the news release. About 1.9 million people in Colorado are fully vaccinated, according to data maintained by the state, and 2.6 million people have received at least one dose. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and that's all the news I have for today. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Stay tuned. Coming up next, we're going to be listening to the RMR Sports Report.
Hey listeners, it's Jonathan Gillen for KCSU Sports. May the 4th be with you. And it's dead week at CSU. Yep, the last week before finals. And it's your last sporting news update of the semester today and, of course, Thursday. Well, let's kick it off what happened this past weekend. Big weekend in the NFL with the NFL Draft concluding. The Denver Broncos surprised local audiences and media by drafting a cornerback instead of taking what many thought would be a linebacker or a quarterback. So there's a little bit of drama there, but let's go to college sports, right? CSU just wrapped up in a slightly eventful weekend with track and field playing in Lawrence, Kansas. Those results are all available at csurams.com. Men's golf did day two of the Mountain West Championship down in Tucson, Arizona, and they finished 6th and 11th. Softball faced at Boise State and lost 3-4 in their first game. and their second game, they won 5-1. And then they finished their third game later on Sunday, where they won 10-2. And that's about it. What we have for Rams Sports Softball, we'll have... A few more games this next weekend, and we'll update you about that on Thursday. I hope everyone has a great week. To the students out there that are studying, good luck. I know you got this. And for KCSU Sports, I'm Jonathan Gillum, and I'll catch you next time. Colorado Creative Industries will receive over $827,000 in federal funding through President Biden's American Rescue Plan. Today, I'm joined by Christine Castello from the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade to discuss the details of that plan and what it means for Colorado's artists and economy. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. To start off with, would you mind explaining a bit about how the pandemic specifically affected the arts industry in Colorado? Absolutely. Um, The creative industries are really a key part of Colorado's economy uh, with higher than average growth in all areas of the state. And we saw some of the largest and fastest growing industries like music and theater and dance revolving around live performing arts were um, impacted the most by COVID-19. So I'll share, uh, we actually did some research in July with CSU on the initial impacts of COVID-19 on the industry. And we found that the major industry clusters were estimated to have lost 31,800 jobs and 823 million. And and that was just, uh, you know, as of July. We hope to update the data soon. And creative industries as a whole um, estimated to lose 59.6 thousand jobs and 2.6 billion. And so it was pretty devastating and and also came with uh, higher than um, among the top five in the state for unemployment claims in the sector. All right. And then just so that everyone knows, can you explain a little bit about Colorado Creative Industries, the organization, what role they play in helping arts organization thrive under normal and strange circumstances? Yeah, so we are the designated state arts agency in Colorado in the Office of Economic Development, and we receive some federal funding to support arts and culture in the state, along with uh, funding from the state legislature. We have a whole suite of grant programs and 
um, professional development, research, and technical support for the industry in, you know, pre-pandemic times. And then um, really as the pandemic has hit, we've shifted our resources to creating recovery and resiliency plans for the sector. And then while I know that you guys haven't made any like strict decisions on it, um, how does Colorado Creative Industries intend to use the funds so far? And what will the decision-making process look like for that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and as you mentioned, we don't have all the details yet on the funding, but we do plan to um, really assess the big picture of what other state and federal funding we have available for arts and culture and creative industries and make sure we're filling all the gaps and covering all the areas. Um, we'll also use a combination of industry data, like the research that I just referenced and feedback from our partners and from um, Coloradans to make decisions about um, how we use the funds. But we, we are bound by certain terms and conditions in our partnership agreement with the NEA. So it will likely, um, a, at least a portion of it will go to nonprofit arts and culture. Um, and there's a potential that some of it could go to um, artist projects, but we, we don't have a solid plan in place yet, as you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And then a lot of people are very focused on how the American Rescue Plan will impact the economy very specifically um, in regards to pandemic recovery. So what do artistic and creative industries represent in terms of jobs, revenue, and other economic factors in the state? Yeah, well, um, creative industries are one of the top five industry sectors in the state. Um, it makes up four four and a half percent of the state's GDP and it's more than mining and transportation. So it's pretty, some people don't realize how huge um, the creative industries, the role is played on the economy and how important these recovery funds are to, to being resilient and to bouncing back um, as we recover from the pandemic. And, though, and then for those who might be involved in the art sector in Colorado, what can they expect related to this new funding in terms of career opportunities or project funding potentially? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, our hope is that some of the funding can be used to, to support and stabilize some of the um, nonprofit arts organizations that are creating jobs and making sure that we're kind of first keeping jobs in place that are um, maybe in an unstable situation. And then I, I don't know if necessarily with the um, American Rescue Plan funds through the NEA this will happen, but there are a number of other state um, funding opportunities that I think will be invested into creating opportunities for putting artists back to work. And then this is more of a clarifying question, but is this fund intended to specifically support visual artists or will this broadly cover all of Colorado's creative ec economies um, so long as nonprofits support them? Yeah, um, we define creative industries broadly. The American Rescue Plan Fund specifically will, will most likely be directed toward nonprofit arts and culture organizations, but that is of all disciplines. So everything from performing arts to visual arts to um, the industries in between. For sure. And then National Endowment for the Arts played a role in announcing this new funding and deciding it for Colorado Creative Industries. Can you tell us a little bit more about their purpose nationwide? 
Sure. So National Endowment for the Arts is, um, you know, the federal agency that um, oversees everything arts and culture in the U.S. And they um, work with in partnership with all of the states and regions, and they give uh, 40% of their funds to the states and regions to reallocate within the um, you know, confines of the strategic plan and needs of those specific states. And then the National Endowment for the Arts has their own suite of grant programs and um, funding to support the arts. And as part of the American Rescue Plan, there will also be direct grants made available through the NEA. So that's something for everyone to keep their eye out for. Um, organizations can apply directly for those funds that will be available directly through the NEA. And then can you also explain a little bit about what the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade does and how they're helping Colorado as a whole through the pandemic? Absolutely. The Office of Economic Development has multiple divisions, creative industries being one of them, the Colorado Tourism Office, and a number of different um, divisions that support business recruitment and retention and funding. And our mission as an office is to develop programs that create economic health in Colorado. And so we've all been working together as a team to do that throughout the pandemic. And um, our office will be administering a number of different state and federal recovery programs as we move forward into the pandemic to make sure the state can stay strong and people can stay employed and have a good quality of life. All right. And then is there anything else you'd like to add about either the office, Colorado Creative Industry specifically, or just recovering from the pandemic as creatives? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're just really excited to be at the forefront of um, the investment that's needed as the creative industries play such a key role in helping our community recover from the COVID-19 crisis. And I think that it's been interesting to see not only, you know, the data on the impact that the pandemic's had on the industry and jobs, but um, it's been interesting to see parallel the role that the arts has played in community wellness and the health of the community and how people have used arts and culture to respond to um, the health and wellness kind of aspect of recovery. And we're excited to play a part in that as well. Keep supporting that. All right. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. And again, that was Christine Castillo from the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade, and she specifically works with Colorado Creative Industries. We discussed new funding to Colorado Creative Industries from the American Rescue Plan. And if you missed any part of this interview, be sure to check it out online at KCSU FM or on Spotify by searching KCSU News. We'll be right back with national news highlights with Jacob Selby.
Hello, you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins 90.5 FM. I'm Jacob Selby, and these are the national news highlights for Tuesday, May 4th. Four people died and dozens were injured after a boat capsized off the coast of San Diego over the weekend. According to Emma Brown of NPR News, the U.S. Coast Guard announced 24 people are accounted for, while four have died and one person remains in critical condition. Authorities say that the boat struck a reef, causing significant damage, which resulted in the watercraft disintegrating. The U.S. Border Patrol and U.S. Coast Guard responded to reports of a capsized boat near Point Lomo on Sunday morning. Wounds ranged from hypothermia due to the cold seawater to major injuries caused by the breakup of the boat. U.S. immigration authorities believe that the boat was most likely transporting undocumented migrants attempting to enter the U.S. The boat was critically overloaded with passengers, which may have contributed to the accident. The U.S. Border Patrol has said all evidence collected has led investigators to believe that the boat was part of an international human smuggling operation. The operator of the boat, who is believed to be running a human smuggling ring, has been taken into American custody for interrogation. Agent Stephenson of the U.S. Border Patrol says that there have been a steady increase of maritime apprehensions this year. The number of maritime apprehensions has gone up by a staggering 92%, with 1,200 more apprehensions than the year before. It is believed human smugglers are attempting to blend in with commercial fishing operations in the area to traffic undocumented migrants into the U.S. This is likely due to an increased land border security between the U.S. and Mexico, which has been steadily increasing over the past decade. However, the illicit nature of the international travel means safety conditions on board the boats may be below maritime standards for seafaring vessels, causing a significantly increased risk to people who attempt to use these services. The Biden administration has announced that it will restrict international travel from India to the United States. According to Cecilia Schoenwalder of U.S. News, the presidential administration has cited an extraordinarily high case rate and explosion of new COVID-19 variants as the primary reason for restricting travel from the Indian subcontinent. Restrictions on travel from India will begin this week with the largest outbreak the world has seen currently underway in the country. The policy does not apply to U.S. residents and their family members currently in India who are legally permitted to travel and live in the U.S. under normal circumstances. The Biden administration came to the decision after consulting with the CDC, who said that allowing unrestricted travel from India could pose a grave health risk to the American public. Meanwhile, the U.S. is currently leading the world in global vaccination rates. However, scientists are concerned at the percentage of people who still refuse to get the vaccine due to fears about the danger of getting the shot, as well as some notorious conspiracy theories, with claims ranging from government control to secret microchips. The CDC claims these types of rumors and conspiracies are extremely dangerous, and they propagate a significant risk to the public. In India, public health officials claim that more than 18 million people have contracted the virus, with over 200,000 deaths to date. While this number is still significantly lower than the U.S. total, Experts in the U.S. are alarmed at the exponential increase in cases in the country, paired with the significantly larger population and potential for a new super strain of the virus entering the U.S. U.S. officials also believe that the numbers provided by the Indian government may actually be drastically lower than the real figures due to a lack of testing in the country. The U.S. currently requires all international visitors to provide proof of a negative COVID-19 test as well as a quarantine on arrival. While the COVID-19 vaccines have been shown to be very effective against the original strain, 
certain more powerful variants can still cause severe symptoms in vaccinated people. India is currently having a critical shortage of medical supplies to fight the pandemic, perpetually making the pandemic worse in the country. A plane carrying equipment, including masks and test kits from the U.S., is expected to arrive in India on Friday to help the government control the situation. It is also worth noting that India was the country which suffered the greatest number of casualties overall during the last major global pandemic in 1918. 76,000 inmates in the California correctional system may be eligible for early release. According to Don Thompson of the Associated Press, California is giving up to 76,000 inmates the opportunity to leave prison early as the state works to trim the population of its prisons. People eligible for release under the plan controversially include violent and repeat offenders. More than 63,000 violent offenders in the state will be eligible to use good behavior credits towards shortening their time by as much as one-third. This is an increase from the prior rate of one-fifth, which had been in place since 2017. The number includes as many as 20,000 inmates who are serving life in prison for violent offenses with the possibility of parole. Also under the new plan, more than 10,000 violent offenders serving their second conviction may be eligible for release after serving only half of their sentence. The law will also apply to 2,900 inmates serving time for their third felony offense as long as the charge did not include violent crimes. Felons in minimum security prisons who served in work or firefighting camps in California will also be eligible to reduce their sentence by one month for every month they served working. The goal of the changes is to incentivize good behavior by prisoners and to encourage participation in rehabilitation and education programs in the prison system. This could help lead to a safer prison environment and reduce the chance of reincarceration after release. The goal of the prison system is also to help to reduce the U.S. prison population by incentivizing a way home through good behavior and proving themselves through their actions. The changes were made through an emergency action by the Department of Corrections meaning they did not have to go through a public comment phase before approval. However, to make the changes permanent, a public comment phase will be opened after a year of the program to see what the reaction has been and if the program should continue. The U.S. currently hosts the world's largest prison population, both by size and per capita, with 665 Americans currently serving time in prison for every 100,000 people in the country. However, critics of the program say that the program does not actually work to rehabilitate prisoners and is instead a tool used to reduce prison populations at all costs. Kent Scheidegger of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation says that many inmates do not have to do anything to get credits to leave and that even when they do get into trouble, credits are often given back to them anyways. Governor Newsom's administration faces criticism for making the decision unilaterally without asking for outside opinion. Many view the policy as a way to reduce prison populations by any means necessary to reduce the cost of the state. Critics have also said that releasing violent offenders who are not fully rehabilitated could have disastrous consequences for the crime rate in California and people who may fall victim to repeat offenders without the intention of changing their ways. That's all for the National News Highlights. I'm Jacob Selby, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins 90.5 FM. Also, be sure to always check out the Rocky Mountain Review, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 4 to 5 p.m. or online at kcsufm.com forward slash news and on Spotify under the KCSU News Podcast.
Since baseball has been around, snacks have been involved. It's one of the fan luxuries that you get in pretty much every level of baseball, from grilling out at a club baseball game when you're a kid, to having funnel cakes at a big league ballpark. It's a tradition as old as the game itself. You acknowledge it every time that you sing the game's anthem. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. I don't care if I never get back. Today, we're going to talk about some of the history behind your favorite ballpark eats and snacks that fill the air every time you sit down to watch a baseball game. Now, a lot of these stories have to deal with a keen businessman who's been called the Babe Ruth of ballpark vending, named Harry Stevens. Many of the concessions we'll talk about today were ideas of his. You see, before these snacks were very popularized, ham sandwiches, cheese sandwiches, ice cream, and lemonade made up the majority of the food that was served at baseball games. But now, we have pretty much everything that you can think of. Peanuts have always been a huge part of baseball, as it gives fans something to do with their hands. If you've ever been to a baseball game, you know that there is quite a lot of nervous energy constantly going through your system. Peanuts became popular among fans as it allowed them to fiddle with the shells while still getting something to eat. The story behind how they came to baseball is a rather interesting one too. You see, in the late 19th century, Stevens decided to sell advertising space to a New Jersey peanut company. But instead of taking money from the peanut company to pay for that advertising space, he decided to get peanuts from them instead. In turn, Stevens sold all of the peanuts that he got from that peanut company at the games, leading to the popularity of the snack. When the song Take Me Out to the Ball Game came out, the part of the song that mentions peanuts was added in order to remind fans to seek out a vendor and get some of the salty snacks. Nowadays, 4 to 7 million bags <laughs> of peanuts are consumed every regular season and make up about a quarter of all concession annual sales according to Sports Illustrated. I know that I would also be part of that statistic as well if I wasn't allergic to peanuts. But while we're on the topic of shells and seeds, what about sunflower seeds? Another package that you basically see well, literally anywhere in a ballpark, sunflower seeds come in many different flavors and sizes, from cracked pepper to ranch and just original kind of flavor to them. They first popped up in the big leagues around 1950, when big leaguers started eating them, as the sunflower seeds packed a lot of protein and vitamins that was beneficial to the players. Also, you could chew them forever, making it a bit of a healthier alternative to the chewing tobacco that used to plague the game and their players. Hall of Fame players Eno Slaughter, Stan Musial, and Reggie Jackson are among some of the snack's most popular users, as they perfected the art of splitting the seed open and spitting it out so the seed was the only thing left in your mouth. Now, although it might sound kind of gross, baseball fans quickly followed suit as they wanted to be just like the players on the field. All of a sudden, seats around the stadium were littered with shells, and grounds crew keepers worked tirelessly to find a way to get the husks out of the dirt and the grass. Cracker Jacks have also been an obvious staple of baseball snacks ever since they were popularized in 1908. 
The molasses covered popcorn and peanuts package was first introduced at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, but it wasn't until 1914 that the snack got its most desirable prize baseball cards in each one of the boxes. This was especially exciting for children, as you can imagine, as they were able to trade each of their cards with other kids while eating the delicious snack. Now, if you happen to have any of these cards, you're very much in luck. A full 176 card complete set sold last year and was valued at around $750,000 with three specialty cards that valued at $100,000 each. The cards were of Shoeless Joe Jackson, Ty Cobb, and Christy Mathewson, all extremely well-known names that have echoed in the Major League Baseball history books. I have a very personal connection with Cracker Jacks as I always remember the Colorado Rockies broadcasters and producers and sound guys and stuff like that throwing bags of them down to the fans during the seventh inning stretch right behind home plate. Now, although the prizes are a bit cheap and a little gimmicky now, it's always kind of satisfying to just sit down to a game with a bag of Cracker Jacks in your hand, knowing that you're part of a tradition that started way long ago. But what about hot dogs? Now, it's said that the hot dog was created for baseball, with the bun becoming the differentiating factor between it and a normal frankfurter or wiener sausage. It's not entirely clear where the first hot dog came from. Some say that a vendor, Antoni Fetchtwanger, I believe it is, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I think I might be, started selling people sausages and offered white gloves to his customers so that they could hold the piping hot food. However, people started to take the gloves and the vendor really started to lose money based off of it. His wife then came up with the idea of a long, soft roll that was perfectly sized and cut to hold the sausages, to which Fetchwanger named Red Hots. Another theory points to the world-famous Coney Island in Brooklyn, when Charles Feldman, who was a German butcher at the time, started to sell hot sausages on rolls. The food became so popular that Feldman opened up a restaurant and stands all over the area. However, in 1916, a bread slicer who worked for Feltman named Nathan Handwecker decided to break away from the business to start his own company, where he would charge five cents for his hot dogs instead of Feltman's usual ten cent charge. The business would grow to the hot dog powerhouse that we know today as Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs. Now, Major League Baseball fans consume about 18.3 million hot dogs and around 4 million sausages every season. And that's not to mention the hot dog eating contest that goes on every July 4th. Now the best part about these hot dogs is that every MLB baseball team has their own specialty hot dog that you can purchase. The Colorado Rockies have the Rocky Dog, which is a foot-long sausage that's covered in peppers, onions, and sauerkraut. The Diamondbacks have a few 18-inch hot dogs that have gravy, fried eggs, and jalapeno poppers on them as well. The Orioles have a hot dog that's loaded with mac and cheese and Maryland crab, which actually doesn't sound that bad. And who can forget the Twins Boomstick, a two-foot-long hot dog smothered in chili, nacho cheese, grilled onions, and jalapenos as well. Every ballpark has some sort of special way that they spiced up the classic. 
I think I speak for a lot of people here when I say that I want to try every single last one of them. So bad. <laughs> Along with the hot dogs came the nachos. Now I can't explain how much I crave nachos every time I go to a baseball game. On top of a cluster of chips that vary from really crunchy to completely soggy, sits a pile of jalapenos, pulled pork, queso, pico de gallo, and beans that form a concoction of food that honestly becomes a bit of a challenge to finish as it fills you up within a matter of seconds. The thing with nachos, though, is that they're actually a relatively new invention in the ballpark concession scene, as they weren't offered in ballparks until 1976. But since then, it's nearly impossible to find a stand that doesn't sell any. Nachos were never really sold at sporting events because it was hard to produce them quickly and cheaply for that matter. That was until a man named Frank Liberto changed it all. You see, Liberto developed a cheese sauce. And I say a cheese sauce because, well, according to the FDA, it can't legally be referred to as cheese, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But the sauce required a little bit of water and some leftover juice from the jalapenos. Mix that together and it created this orange sauce that could be dispensed from a pump. Now since the sauce came in cans and was easily dispensable and didn't need to be refrigerated, the idea sold well to ballparks. The Rangers were the first to adapt it and the new snack brought in around $800,000 in sales in its debut season. Since then, other sporting events, like football, adopted a new concession to great success, making it one of the most popular concessions at the ballpark and sporting events around the world. Now, I feel like I've covered some of the most popular concessions that you most commonly come across at a baseball game. But what about some of the weirder, one-off concessions that you get to see at only a few ballparks? One that immediately comes to mind comes from the Seattle Mariners, who sell toasted grasshoppers covered in a chili lime seasoning. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but that just seems very weird. <laughs> I've seen some pictures of these grasshoppers, and there are actually two different ones. There's one called the grasshopper, and there's one called chappy lines, which are basically like a french fry kind of grasshopper toasted thing but the grasshopper ones more specifically still have legs on them they still have antennas and it just seems like the weirdest thing you could eat but i feel like even weirder is that people love them you see the mariners hospitality partner center plate which is one of about six major hospitality partners around the league well, you see, they ordered 20 pounds of these chapulins, of which all of them were sold out in a single day. They were trying to get them to stretch over an all-star weekend, but they ended up selling all of them out in one day. The thing about them is they're affordable at just $5 for a cup of them. And they're definitely quite a novelty, which makes them so unique. I mean, you definitely just get them so that you can take a picture of them, post them on Instagram, post them on Twitter, and say, hey, look what I ate today. This is really weird. I mean, it's just the novelty behind them that I think makes them so popular. The Diamondbacks also find themselves on this list of weird foods as they offer a rather delectable treat called the churro dog. 
Now this one is crazy because it's a churro inside of a donut topped with ice cream and chocolate sauce. And it looks like an actual hot dog. It's really strange. Now when it comes to ice cream at baseball games, you can usually expect it in these mini helmets with a few sprinkles on top, maybe like some chocolate drizzle, you know, not very much. The Chicago White Sox, however, have a special dessert that offers a full-size batting helmet, complete with 12 scoops of ice cream, two or three bananas, whipped cream, strawberry sauce, chocolate drizzle, and cherries as well. And while we're on the topic of dessert, why don't you stop by the Rangers game to get the Elvis Jabber Dog Brownie, which is a two-foot brownie rolled in Rice Krispies that is then dipped in funnel cake batter and then deep fried. <laughs> And that's drizzled with everything as well. I feel that sports concessions are always just a good excuse to try some crazy foods. Many people think of going to sporting events as sort of a holiday. I mean, it's not something that you get to do all the time, so when you get to do it, it's, I mean, it's definitely an event. It's time to just eat whatever, drink whatever, and cheer on your favorite team for a few hours on a warm day. I mean, what is there not to love about that? Plus, I mean, calories don't count when you're at a baseball game. Everyone knows that. I'm Cutta Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports a cumulative total of over 3,200 COVID-19 cases since May of 2020. Larimer County remains at a medium COVID-19 risk score and in the cautious level on the county's COVID-19 risk dial. Larimer County reports over 25,700 cases and 237 deaths due to COVID-19. The county reports nearly 500 outbreaks and over 293,000 vaccinations administered. Larimer County's seven-day case rate sits at 163 cases per 100,000 residents. Out of all tests administered in the past week, 4.2% came back positive. 38 COVID patients received treatment in area hospitals and intensive care unit utilization in Larimer County rests at 76%. The state of Colorado reports around 515,000 cases and over 6,400 deaths due to COVID-19. Over 2.9 million people have been tested in the state, which reports nearly 5,000 outbreaks. 2.6 million people have been vaccinated with one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, and over 1.9 million are fully vaccinated in Colorado. The United States reports around 32.5 million cases of COVID-19, with around 50,000 new cases Monday. Nationally, 577,000 died from COVID-19 with an increase of over 700 on Monday. In the past two weeks, cases went down by 26% and deaths went down by 3%. 32% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated and 44% has received at least one dose of an approved COVID-19 vaccine. The best methods in COVID-19 prevention for those not currently immune to the virus through vaccination include washing your hands regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing face masks, and keeping social distance from others outside your household. KCSU reminds listeners that face masks are generally required in public regardless of vaccination status. 
and vaccinated individuals can still be asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19. Information from this segment comes from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and the New York Times. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Now for tech news on the Rocky Mountain Review, but stay tuned after that because in five minutes you'll be hearing weird news with Ivy Winfrey. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is technology news for Tuesday. Facebook intends to announce updates on former U.S. President Donald Trump's suspension from the platform this week. According to Barbara Ortute from the Associated Press, Facebook's oversight board, which was created specifically to decide whether or not the former president will be allowed on Facebook after the January 6th riots, says the announcement will come Wednesday. The former president used Facebook but heavily relied on Twitter, which permanently banned him from their platform with no intention to debate or overturn that decision. Facebook's oversight board also targets other controversial issues on the platform, including safety and the use of hate speech. Some argue that the board was designed to make the public and journalists feel more comfortable with Facebook's decisions related to freedom of speech rather than to actually fix anything, while others believe that this board allows for a variety of individuals to support the platform in making the right decisions in terms of public safety and protecting free speech. Continued shortages in microchips are starting to cause worse disruptions in manufacturing devices. According to Camila Damanaske from National Public Radio, shortages are beginning to impact Apple device production specifically. This may make it more difficult to gain access to Apple's iPads or MacBook products. The global semiconductor shortage so far disrupted production in a variety of industries, but most notably car manufacturing. The shortage caused entire manufacturing plants to shut down and made surviving plants cut costs where necessary. Apple Chief Financial Officer Lucy Maestri said Wednesday that this global shortage is expected to impact Apple's sales and offset Apple's expected revenue from iPads and MacBooks by $3-4 to $4 billion over the next three months due to lack of proper materials to make these products. Issues facing various manufacturers could cause prices to go up due to a lack of supply of semiconductor chips and an increasing demand for smart products. Over one-third of Basecamp's employees resigned after the company banned political conversations in the workplace. According to Sarah Kessler of the New York Times, Chief Executive Jason Fried called, quote, social and political discussions, end quote, a major distraction. Basecamp is a productivity software company, and Fried also banned committees and cut some employee benefits. 20 out of the 57 total employees posted resignation announcements publicly. David Hansen, co-founder of Basecamp, wrote in a separate post that Basecamp offered six months of severance pay to employees who disagreed with their decision to bar political speech in the workplace. Various other companies announced similar bans in recent years, with many of these companies also facing a sudden loss of employees directly after the announcement. That's all for tech news highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Up next, we're going to be hearing weird news with Ivy Winfrey. But first, we're taking a quick break, but stay tuned for more. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Sometimes things need to get a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. An AI designed to distinguish different kinds of pastries has been found to be able to identify cancer cells with 99% accuracy. According to James Somers at The New Yorker, 
Bakery Scan, developed by Japan-based BrainCo, scans baked goods on a tray with a camera and uploads the official name of each to a system for easy checkout at a bakery. Bakery Scan, first released in 2013, was designed by computer system engineer Hisashi Kambe, who sold the innovation to BrainCo. Customers place their selections on the tray, and then the camera analyzes the bread or pastries, cataloging their size, shape, and color to match them with one of up to 100 different types stored in the checkout system. Four years after Bakery Scan was released for retail, a doctor spotted the technology during a television show and pondered if it could do the same for cancer, realizing that cancer cells look similar to bread when under a microscope. A doctor from the Luis Pasteur Center for Medical Research in Kyoto had the system revised to spot cancerous cells on a microscope slide with 99% accuracy. The system uses deep learning for object recognition, and doctors are able to train the AI to recognize cancerous cells every single time. Identifying cancer cells to determine whether tumors are benign or malignant can be labor-intensive, with each cell needing to be analyzed individually, but Bakery Scan, due to its design, can analyze entire trays of cells. While the technology is still years away from widespread medical use, doctors hope this technology can be used to significantly reduce the amount of false negatives experienced during testing and help begin a life-saving treatment much quicker. A farmer in Belgium caused a stir after accidentally redrawing Belgium's border with France. According to the BBC, a local history enthusiast was walking in the forest when he noticed the stone marking the boundary between the two countries had moved seven and a half feet. The Belgian farmer, apparently annoyed by the stone in his tractor's path, had moved it inside the French territory. The border between France and what is now Belgium stretches 390 miles. It was formally established under the Treaty of Kortkirk, signed in 1820 after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo five years earlier. The, sto the stone dates back to 1819, when the border was first marked out. David Laveau, mayor of Belgian village of Erkelinus, told French TV channel TF1 that, quote, he made Belgium bigger and France smaller. It's not a good idea. I was happy my town was bigger, but the mayor of boussinet sur roc didn't agree. Local Belgian authorities plan to contact the farmer to ask them to return the stone to its original location. If that does not happen, the case could end up at the Belgian Foreign Ministry, which would have to summon a Franco-Belgian Border Commission, a commission that has been dormant since 1930. Mr. Laveau noted that the farmer could also face criminal charges if he failed to comply, telling Belgian news website Sodifino, Quote, if he shows goodwill, he won't have a problem. We'll settle this issue amicably. End quote. A man suspected of participating in the January 6th Capitol riot was arrested after bragging about his involvement in the riot on a dating app. According to Robert Hart at Forbes, Robert Chapman from Puntam County, New York, was arrested by the FBI and charged with trespassing and disorderly conduct on restricted government property. The FBI were tipped off to Chapman's involvement when a woman he had matched with on the dating app Bumble shared her messages, in which she allegedly, in which he allegedly said he did storm the Capitol and made it all the way into Statuary Hall. She allegedly wrote, we are not a match to him before sending the messages and other information on Chapman to the authorities. A review of body cam footage collaborated this, showing Chapman inside the Capitol. 
Federal officials have arrested and charged more than 400 alleged participants in the mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Many alleged rioters have been turned in by family, friends, and even online sleuths, who are deliberately using dating apps to gather incriminating evidence and confessions to hand over to the FBI. Many are charged with relatively minor offenses like unlawful entry, though more serious charges have been leveled against those who seemingly worked together to storm the Capitol, including members of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. Officials have said that their investigation into the Capitol riots is still underway. At least 100 more people will be charged, prosecutors said last week. That's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now for the weather. On this Tuesday, we experience pretty sunny skies with some rain with a high of 56 and a low of 39. And moving into Wednesday, you can expect very similar weather with a high of 60 and a low of 39. And once again, the potential for scattered thunderstorms and some moderate winds. Thursday will warm up and the sun will return with a high of 72 and a low of 46 with sunny skies and the same winds as earlier this week. And for Friday, don't forget to join us for our last episode of the Rocky Mountain Review until August from 4 to 5 p.m. Thursday on 90.5 FM. And that's all for Information today. Information comes we from the Weather Channel. Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Corrin, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Lindsay Johnson, Sam Benefe, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, Portia Cook, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mount Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>